right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. F that. You don't got time for that. All right? Let's go. Crank it. Crank it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Nick Springer on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Hey, what's happening? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson. With me is Nick Springer. Hey. We are brought to you by 23rd Street Brewery on today's show, as we always are. And we're out a little bit early today, 545 for High School Sports Weekly over at Mama's Tamale Shop. Uh, we're going to be joined by the voice of the Jayhawks, Brian Haney, coming up at 505. We've got some audio to get to you throughout the show. And we'll talk some uh, KU basketball fun with numbers coming up later. But off the top here, KU football has a new offensive coordinator, Jeff Grimes is the new OC for KU football. Now, I, I don't know if we've, because a couple weeks ago when Andy Kotelnicki left to take the Penn State job, we heard the report of Jim Zabrowski being named co-offensive coordinator at KU. Um, I think we're still waiting to see what comes of that. Like, will Jim Zabrowski be co-offensive coordinator with Jeff Grimes, or is this job all to Jeff Grimes himself? Yeah. But uh, anyway, as, as far as what they're getting here, uh, this report was from Ross Dellinger. It has also been reported uh, by The Athletic that they are expected to hire him. He was a longtime coach, mostly on the offensive line, recently has been an offensive coordinator, 55-year-old uh, offensive coordinator, played his football at UTEP. Then he was an O-line coach uh, among the schools he was at, Boise State, Arizona State, BYU, Colorado, Auburn, where he won a national title, Virginia Tech, and LSU. He then became an offensive coordinator at BYU in 2018, where he served for three years. Then he was hired to Baylor as the offensive coordinator in 2021, where he served for three years. He was fired this past season from Baylor, though that seems to be more of a things weren't going well for Baylor, and Dave Aranda, the head coach, had to kind of Make some move, kind of scapegoat something. We see that all yep. the time. Uh, I also think it's interesting. He was the offensive coordinator and the tight ends coach yep, that's what at I was Baylor, gonna. which Andy Kotelnicki was at Kansas. So yeah, just kind of a, a seamless replacement. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to point out. Is uh, It seems rather convenient that he also happened to be the tight ends coach at Baylor as well. So, uh, yeah, all, by all, all accounts, this seems like a, a pretty solid hire. I think there was, you know, honestly, a couple weeks ago, I would have, been pretty surprised to learn that KU was going to hire somebody from the outside. To me, it felt like they would probably just promote with from within for the offensive coordinator job with Zabrowski and, and go from there, considering you had experience as an OC previously under Lance Leipold. But uh, in this day and age in uh, coaching, like with the coaching carousel, there's there's probably going to be some quality guys out there that you can go grab. And, and so uh, all things considered, I think this is a pretty solid hire. I think uh, the initial reaction seemed a little cold, but I think a lot of people are starting to warm up to it a little bit as they dive deeper into the type of play caller that Jeff Grimes is and, and kind of his style. Uh, there was a report that suggested that his style is, is one that, uh, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's basically like they want to, it was similar vibes to what Andy Kolnick has been doing already at KU. So I think schematically it seems like a pretty pretty solid fit. The fact that he was already a tight ends coach at Baylor also probably helps considering that's where Andy Kolnick was as well. And uh, 
I think he's shown through his track record that you know that's a that's a long list of Power Five schools that he's been at, uh, which I think would suggest that he's an experienced coach. And the question I one of the things that I've thought about with this hire is when you operate the way that Lance Leipold does with like the process and the system and everything like that. When you bring in somebody from the outside, is it going to is Grimes going to have to basically adapt to exactly what Lance Leipold and the, exactly what the what he's asking for in this process, or is there going to be some more freedom on the part of Grimes coming in to bring in some of his own stuff? That I guess will be remain to be seen, but that's kind of my question at this point. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I should mention this: he has a son. I mean, he has a bunch of sons. I think he's like four sons. One of them, though, Graydon Grimes is a 6'5 tight end who is a three-star recruit in the class of 2024. He's committed to Baylor. Mm. Does that switch over to Kansas, right? I mean, you're going to be losing Mason Fairchild. You, you add to the tight end. I don't know. That'll be uh, kind of interesting to see if Something that else, comes along with him. Uh, that was pointed out is uh, Jeff Grimes played under Andy Reid at UTEP. Is that right? Yeah, Andy oh, Reid was the uh, O-line coach at UTEP. When I didn't know Andy Reid yeah. was the O-line coach there. I know he uh, coached at one point under or with Dave Tobe, too, who's obviously the special team. So I, I guess all sorts of tie-ins there. Uh, he has a great mustache, you know, or at least did at one point. So. Yeah, also had been nominated two times for the... Uh, the Broyles Award? Yeah, the Broyles Award. Mm -hmm. Yep, for a top offensive assist, a top yeah, not assistant. Yeah, Broyles, yeah. Yeah, Broyles. Very yeah. different. Broyles, <laughs> yeah. We don't need to name an award after our Broyles. Um, no, bad idea. Yeah, Broyles. Which obviously, yeah. anybody who has any concerns about that, Grimes was at Baylor yeah, way these, after these were, Yeah, good point, good point. Good very, job. very separate eras. Yeah, so um, I, I have seen some people asking about how he is as a recruiter. I don't know that as well. I'll say this. I took a look at the 24-7 sports page at, uh, of recruits he's been as the primary or secondary. All sorts of high-end three stars, four stars, and five stars. I think he, he uh, as the primary secondary, had 21 four- and five-star commits. 20 of the 21 were offensive and defensive linemen, so good recruiting in the trenches. Now, part of that goes back to his days at like Auburn and LSU and Virginia Tech, so I, I don't know how good of a recruiter he is specifically, but as far as the offense, you know, there's there's a couple ways of looking at it. Like you said, when, when the, the announcement first happened, there were a couple KU fans that you might have seen on social media being like, really? This is the guy who got fired by Baylor? They only averaged 23 points per game this last season. Um, yeah, I mean, yes, that, that is, I guess, something that can be a little bit concerning. I would just easily say, well, Baylor, I, hard I guess to, they just, I don't know, they, 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 they got injuries. blasted by Texas State to start the season, and right. that just kind of set the tone for them to have a bad It game. did, and, and they played like three different quarterbacks, uh, the starter got injured, like, they had to go yep. through all of that. Yep. Um, sometimes you... If if the offensive coordinator isn't as as much into the recruiting side and it's more of just give me the pieces and I'll make it work, which was kind of how Andy Kotelnicki worked with with Kansas, he wasn't as big into the recruiting. Um, then maybe you're hopeful that your team can bring it. In. I don't know. Bay, I guess the way I'm I'm trying to go with this, Baylor didn't have a lot of dudes on their team. No. Like think about it. Like how many years in the past have we said, oh Baylor has this stud receiver, they have this stud running back. They had some oh, pretty yeah. good running backs this year, but like. They didn't have dudes on this year's team. Like, how many players were littered on the all-conference team from Baylor? They didn't really have them, right? Yeah. So, um, I easily point to that. And you look at the overall track record of this guy. When he was at BYU, they had successful offenses. More than successful offenses. Yeah, more than successful offenses. So, he took over the BYU job in uh, 2018. He was named in, in December 2017 and then took over in 2018. Uh, they ended up winning the Idaho Potato Bowl that year, his first year on the job. They averaged 27 points per game, um, which was 79th in the country. So not, like, great there. They were, in yards per play, a little bit better. 
Um, they were like 70th in the country in yards per play at 5.5 yards per play. So then year two, and, and keep in mind, that first year at BYU, he had a quarterback controversy between Tanner Mangum and like a freshman Zach Wilson. Um, so then you go to year two. Players maybe a little bit better around him. They go seven and six again. They lose the Hawaii Bowl. And in that second year, they're up to 29th in the country in yards per play, 6.1 yards per play. Uh, they were 68th, though, in points per game at 28 and a half. Then you go to 2020, and things really broke out. And this was when Zach Wilson had the breakout. This was Zach Wilson's final year of college. When Zach Wilson was good. Yes, when Zach Wilson ended up being, I mean, I, there's a way of looking at this. Like, he got Zach Wilson to be a top three pick in the NFL draft. Wilson had 33 touchdowns. If you count rushing touchdowns, Zach Wilson had 43 touchdowns to three interceptions. That's pretty incredible on a 73% completion rate. And uh, offensively, they ended up third in the country in points per game at 43.5 and, and first in the country in yards per play at 7.7. So if you have dudes around him, right, they had Zach Wilson, they had Tyler Algier as, uh, you know, one of the leading rushers or, or the leading rusher on the team. Uh, from the receiving standpoint, like um, Isaac Rex was still on the team. Uh, Dax Milne was a pretty good receiver for them. So, like, they had decent players around you, and boom, like, there you go. You you actually have, like, not just a really good offense. You have an elite offense. Yeah. So then after that year, uh, does really well. That earns him a job at Baylor as the offensive coordinator and tight ends coach. And his first year with Baylor, they go 12-2. and two, They win the Big 12 title. And then they win the Sugar Bowl to finish that season 12-2 and two and ranked fifth in the final AP poll. They averaged 31.6 points per game, which was 40th in the country. But keep in mind, when you play for a defensive head coach like Dave Aranda, sometimes your offense is going to need to play into the defense more, right? Like, Good, you're going to yeah. play more of a ball control. You're going to have lower possessions per game. And uh, they were 41st that year in yards per play, and they had, you know— decent like Jerry Bohannon and Blake Shapin were pretty good that year they had a really good running game Abram Smith had 1600 rushing yards Tristan Ebner had 800 rushing yards and yeah, they were a top five rushing offense in the country I believe that year yeah really good uh then you go to 2022 they ended up losing in a bowl game to Air Force that year offense dropped down to 32 well actually went up in points per game 32.2 points per game 39th in the country yards per play went to five and a half which was 58th so all those numbers are fine and good and everything and and then this past year it kind of uh the balloon popped so to speak which um i i think again was yeah he was dealt a, a tough hand there were a bunch of quarterback injuries um also the quarterbacks that played weren't like sawyer robinson was a starter for multiple games. He had two touchdowns of four interceptions this year. Like, that's kind of problematic there. So, you look yeah. at that, you look at the defense wasn't very good for Baylor this year, and um, they struggled getting off the field. That's that's going to put the offense in disadvantageous positions, so to speak. I, I think this guy's a good offensive coordinator, I, I guess is, is point being. Do I think he's as good as Andy Kotelnicki? No, I do not. So from that standpoint, no, I don't think you upgraded. I don't think you're walking away but, with okay, this being happy this. about the trade-off. But like, uh, realistically, is there any hire they could have made where you were? I mean, probably very not. few hires where you've been like, that's definitely an upgrade. I mean, Andy Kulnicki, there's a reason why he was uh, one of the top assistants in the country. And he just get named so like assistant coach of the year by some publication yesterday. Yes. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, you're you know, right. You're right. It was going to be hard to upgrade. Right. But here's why I think this actually is a really good hire, and I think this is a good fit. One, it's the the scheme, the style of play. So what Jeff Grimes likes to do, wide zone, 
which we heard a lot about when Andy Kotelnicki and Lance Leipold first came to KU. Now, they've done it. It's been something they use in their offense. It never has been as much of a staple, I think, at Kansas as it was at maybe Buffalo before. But he does that, so you're going to have some of that. He likes to have a power running game. You mentioned he had a, a great running attack with Baylor. I mean, even the year that he did have Zach Wilson where he was putting up Heisman-level numbers, Tyler Algier ran for like 1,200 yards that year, right? So he likes to run the football and he likes to run a lot of play action. He likes to put a lot of guys in motion. He likes to run uh, a lot of two, three tight end sets. Maybe it's not as creative and, you know, out of your mind or out of the box, I guess, uh, as Andy Kotelnicki. But there are a lot of similarities there, and there are a lot of similarities in, yeah, we want to be a, a powerful running team. We want to be a balanced offense. We want to run the wide zone. We want to uh, run play action really well. We want to hit deep shots off of play action, right? I mean, uh, remember the game last year against Baylor when we were previewing the KU Baylor game? And yeah, Baylor didn't have a bunch of receivers that were going for a thousand yards, but they had a bunch of guys averaging 18, 19, 20 yards per catch, right? So um, I think he fits philosophically into what Kansas has done these past couple of years. I think it's going to be an easy transition. Like I said, we're still waiting on the Jim Zabrowski stuff. Like, are they going to be co-offensive coordinators? Which I think could make sense. Like, maybe maybe Jeff Grimes is your run game coordinator. Maybe Zabrowski is your pass game coordinator. Um, but I think this is going to work. And I think when you look at the, like, at Baylor right now, there's some instability, whether it was the injuries to players or, like I said, the lack of dudes. Dave Aranda is going to be on the hot seat this season if they don't make a bowl game. If they don't even, I don't know, maybe maybe even if they go 6-6, six and six, he might get fired. I, mean, I think he's the on the hot season, seat right, right now. Yeah, he yeah. is. He is. He is. Absolutely. Um, so when you look at that, it's instability. Right now at Kansas, there's stability. And when you look at Lance Leipold, he creates stability in what he is as a head coach. You have all these other assistant coaches back at their positions with you. You have what should be a really good surrounding cast of players um, and a great quarterback with Jalen Daniels as long as he can stay healthy, although you do have good backups, you would think, with Isaiah Marshall and Cole Ballard too, um, that the infrastructure is in place to me that when I look at the, the different seasons Jeff Grimes has had, I look more to the years where he's had success because I think he has around him at Kansas now what he had to have success at those other stops, and I think he'll have that and stylistically everything meshes here. Yeah, I think to your point with the philosophically stuff, I 100% agree. I mean, he seems like a, a guy that is similar in terms of what he wants to do to Andy Kolnicki. To your point, maybe not necessarily as creative or as flashy or as cute, I guess, for, for lack of a better term, in terms of what Andy Kolnicki would cook up. But philosophically, I do think that there's quite a bit of similarities there. Uh, he was a tight ends coach also at Baylor. That fits in with what Andy Kolnicki was at Kansas. So it kind of a seamless transition. And, and I think all that does make sense. Again, kind of what I allude to, my biggest question, I guess, would be, is this a situation where Kansas, and and I think it'll come down to whether or not Jim Zabrowski ends up being the, the call offensive coordinator or not, my question would be, when you bring in a guy like this from the outside and Kansas has everybody else back and, and they're all about continuity and they're all about this process, is it going to be, hey, you need to come in and you need to just be another cog in the process? Or is it going to be will Grimes actually have the ability to maybe do more of what he wants to do? And that's that's hard to say from the outside, right? I guess we'll just have to see how it, how it plays out. But that's kind of my one question is, like, when you have so much of this where literally every other, you know, position coach, whatever, is back, plus Lance Leipold, and obviously they, they talk so much about the process and everything, is it a situation where he's going to step in and just be asked to continue the process, or is there going to be an opportunity for, for any sort of extra wrinkles added or extra – you know, things that, that Grimes wants to add in. That's kind of my biggest question at this point, but I do agree with you. I think it's a pretty strong hire. Uh, I'm a bit surprised, again, that they – or 
I guess I'm maybe not as much surprised now as I would have been, say, two weeks ago or immediately after Andy Kolnicki left. But I am a little surprised that they did go outside. But they seem to have gone outside and, and found a, a guy that checks a lot of boxes uh, in terms of what they lost with Andy Kolnicki from just a, just a personnel standpoint. Offensive coordinator, tight ends coach, you know, kind of runs, kind of likes to run a, a similar offense. And maybe it's not the same. So they did a good job of, I guess, of scouting and finding a guy that does a lot of the same things or is interested in doing a lot of the same things. My question is just how does it kind of fit in, which is that's something we'll have to just wait and see on. Yes. But like I said, I, I actually would be kind of a proponent of if you do make Zabrowski coast. At the very least, if you have him be involved, I, I would imagine for the bowl game, don't expect Jeff Grimes to be the offensive coordinator calling plays for the bowl game, right? I'd imagine he gets around the program, gets familiar with it over the next couple of weeks. Could Although, be, yeah. I, I don't know how that stuff all works. Um, I'd imagine Zabrowski's still going to be calling plays for the bowl game. Right? You would think. Yeah. Yeah. You so, would think. Yeah, and like, I don't know. I mean, I guess they wouldn't they wouldn't demote Zabrowski, so I guess it it's, it's kind of a moot point, like he's going to yeah. be the co-offensive coordinator. Right. I'm waiting to see. I'm I'm waiting to see. I do think going back when when that was first announced, there were we definitely had questions like, okay, wait, why is he co-offensive? Like, what's what's going on is here? It? Right. I I think this is maybe the answer why that they didn't want to fully because if you just make someone co-offensive coordinator, it's well, almost then, like an interim position, you, isn't it? Well, then okay, why would you do that then? Why would you just say he's interim for the short term? I guess you could. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It seems it seems a little odd. I don't know. Yeah, it is. And I, I don't know if it was just a move by Kansas to sort of preempt the Konalicki news and be like, this is our guy, basically. But again, it ended up being not their guy because they hired another guy. Sure. So, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. It's a bit confusing, honestly. Uh, for what it's worth, I, I do know that the like the option stuff, I'm pretty sure, came and comes from Matt Lubick, who's an analyst with the KU football staff. And uh, I know Lubick is is battling leukemia right now. So, you know, yeah. prayers up for him and, and hope everything's going well there. But uh, from that standpoint of integrating that into the offense, like I don't think that was just an Andy Kolonicki thing. I think that's that, that's a Matt Lubick thing, and KU still has him. And I think uh, from the KU perspective, like to your point on you don't know how much is this going to be the Jeff Grimes show, how much of it is going to be the – KU show with Jeff Grimes on board for what the offense runs and how they run everything. I tend, if I had to guess, I would tend to lean to the idea it's more of the KU show where it is a joint effort of putting together the offense, but then it's just maybe Jeff Grimes is the one who's actually dialing up the plays. He's the one actually calling them. So I do think it's a joint effort. And yeah, I like the hire overall. I think it's a good scheme fit. I think it's, it's different, but it, there's a lot of similarities that they'll make this go over you would hope well, and you have a lot of player talent, a lot of other coaching talent in that building yeah. that I think is going to make this work all right. Yeah. All right, he's Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Shock Sports Talk on KLWN. We'll get to fun with numbers coming up in a little bit. Brian Haney, voice of the Jayhawks, joins us at 5.05 on KLWN. Depend on it. It's about half past three on Rock Shock Sports Talk with Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. We're going to be joined by Brian Haney at 5.05. We're going to have a fun with numbers segment, KU football regular season superlative segment. After that, coming up in the 4 o'clock hour, we've got some uh, audio to get to throughout the rest of the show. We're out a little bit early today at 5.45 for High School Sports Weekly. It's happening at Mama's Tamale Shop, best authentic Mexican food in Lawrence. You can go on out to the show with uh, that starting at 5.45 right here on KLWN. So there's this uh, proposal that's, I don't know, going around college football or something. 
and it's uh, make a play, get paid. It's a proposal to put a player's Venmo up on the Jumbotron immediately after a big play, which would allow fans to donate in real time, and then the screen tracks and displays the total donations coming in for everybody to see. This is literally the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my entire life. And you've said a lot of dumb ideas to me. This is way dumber. Idea. Yeah. This is way dumber. I mean, this is so incredibly stupid. I hate this with a fiber of my being. I think it's horrible. What are we doing here? I think this is very stupid for a lot of different reasons. Um, And it's just like, how many big plays do you have during it? Like, there, there's so many reasons this is stupid. It would take away so much from the game, too. Imagine you're a player and... Now you're focusing on while you're playing. Yeah, you're ridiculous. focusing on this, and then the whole I mean, game you're dude, mad because your play got. They you don't even do this type of crap in the NFL. Yeah, no. This okay, would be the you know why? Because it's stupid, right? It's so stupid. Just play the game. Ridiculous. Yeah. Also, do ridiculous. you have to go into every game if you're a fan now and start budgeting out? Like, okay, I have, I have twenty dollars to give out to the players. I have yeah. to decide. Oh, that play's worth two dollars. Oh, that play's worth five dollars. Yeah, no, very stupid. It is very the stupid. worst idea I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah. yeah, and like I said, you've had a lot of bad ideas, but yeah, man, like this. Stop trying the, to throw me under the bus. What did I do? <laughs> but yeah, man, dude, the the nil stuff. I think I I don't know if I specifically told you this on air, but off the off air we've talked about it, and I, I, there's a there's a tipping point. There is a tipping point with this stuff. I don't know when we're gonna get to it or what it's what that looks like, but I think it's coming. Probably sooner rather than later, where people are going to yeah. realize, wait a second, this is, this is bad. Like this is not good. Like this is, you know, you're heavily impacting the lives of 18 to 20, 22 year old kids, and trying to, you know, just make it all about money. And I get, I get, I get some of that, right? Like if you're a college, if you're a high level college football player, you should be, you know, it's, you know, billions and billions of dollars should not just be funneling straight into the pockets of ESPN. Right. And, and also, I get the, the sense so I of understand. take care of your family. Yes, but there's a there's a level from that, and I think and to, NIL is you know objectively yeah. good. I think I, Gen- yes, the, the I mean, idea generally it, yes, the implementation of it can be very bad. I think in certain cases, but but yeah, man. I mean, just stuff like this, like it's just utterly ridiculous. Like it doesn't even, it's it's insane. It's it's literally insane. Yeah, and I, I think the the whole guys too, and then this goes back in line with like the transfer portal because I think there is a lot of nil poaching in the transfer portal, and that leads to that happening. And like that's where the tipping point is kind of coming for me right now. I'll be honest, like I really enjoyed the transfer portal from our college basketball perspective because that's in the off season for us, and it gives us something to talk about. So like selfishly, that's helpful. But like, yeah. it's okay. So I I understand the transfer portal from like. Kids unhappy, maybe they're mistreated, uh, maybe uh, they don't get along with the coach, the coach leaves for another job, you're just not going to get playing time. There are a lot of reasons to transfer. The reason that I that just uh, the uh, boggles my mind and is my tipping point in, in kind of what you were talking about there is the kids who are transferring just to like raise the NIL money that they're getting by... You know, I, I guess I could sort of understand if it's like, hey, the school that I'm at right now doesn't give me NIL money and I need to take care of my family and this school's offering me 200000 Like, okay, I can understand that. But like if you're, let's say, let's like Dylan Gabriel, maybe that's even a bad example because maybe Oklahoma's like, hey, we're ready to move on to Jackson Arnold, who's our stud five-star quarterback. But like, for instance, you have kids who are going from like Ohio State 
or from Oklahoma or Texas who are starters where like that just blows my mind where it's like you're a starter at a at a blue blood football school and you're transferring somewhere else so that you can maybe go from making a hundred thousand in NIL to hundred and twenty thousand or something. And that's the tipping point for me where it's like this is stupid. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, I, I think uh, at some point it, it, you have to take a step back and say, what is going on here? These are 18- yeah. to 22-year-old kids that are, are playing football at, at the collegiate level. What there's All, all the other stuff is just it's, – it's so super, superfluous. It's so in, insane. Like, again, like get read that headline to somebody 10 years ago, and they, they, they wouldn't even be able to comprehend it. They'd be like, what, what, what is this? What, I mean, what are we doing here? I mean, it's like straight. It's like straight out of the Roman Coliseum stuff. Like, oh, the highest bidder, whoever can make the highest, the best hit in the game, yeah. is going to get an extra five dollars from the crowd. It's just ridiculous. All right, uh, brighter story here. This is from Jonathan Wasserman, who is the lead scout and NBA draft guy for Bleacher Report. He has Kevin McCuller up to fifteenth in his latest uh, top prospects. That's fifteenth. Cool. Yeah, isn't that crazy? I mean, listen. The defense is obviously there. I think at this point, you can't really question his leadership and uh, and his experience. It, the The issue with him continued to be: could he shoot from beyond the arc at a at a not even like a high clip, just a reasonable clip, right? And uh, that's definitely the case right now. And, and again, he may finish the season shooting thirty six percent or thirty five percent, right? Right? He's at thirty nine percent right now. Mm-hmm. If that even if that drops three or four percent, that's still three or four percent better than what he had been which is very very impressive very very impressive so and that's got to turn the heads of a lot of NBA scouts I would think of man here's a guy who absolutely puts his body on the line hustles plays excellent defense and is now starting to prove that he can be a shooter if left open he's also even despite the fact that this is what his sixth year of college he must have joined college I think he did join college early because I think he he uh came after his it was like he came for the second semester of one year when he should have been a senior in high school. He's still 22. So by draft time maybe he's 23. Wow. So it's not even like he's oh he's been in college forever. He's 24, 25 years old. Like yes, 23 is still going to be, you know, held against him compared to the 19 and 20 year olds, but uh it's it's not as as drastic as you might have thought. So I don't know if I actually buy him going that high. I hope he does cuz I you know, it'd be awesome for for him and everything. Um, but I, I am buying that, yeah, if the shot is good, I've, I've said this all along, if he shoots mid to high 30% from three, I see no reason why he can't be at least a late first-round pick. Yeah. Um, this one from Michael Swain, 24-7 Sports. Kansas basketball is set to host five-star prospect Bryson Tiller for an official visit this weekend. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that behind the scenes, Kansas is looking at options for possibly trying to add somebody at semester. I don't know if this is a guy that would that – would be a candidate well, he's currently that. at that overtime elite right now, so wouldn't hypothetically he be able to join whenever? I, I don't know. That's I don't know saying. how this works. He is class of 2025, though. So maybe not. I don't know. So probably not. But, but he's the number six recruit in the country on 24-7 sports, eighth on their composite. Yeah. So, you know, Kansas is still trying to make some moves on the recruiting trail. Maybe not this guy specifically, but yeah, I do think that they are looking into bringing in somebody, and it's just a matter of maybe not so much if, but when they do find a guy that they feel like they can add that maybe helps boost their depth a little bit and uh, brings a little bit extra to them. So Yeah, and if they are going to add somebody by semester, uh, the clock is going to be ticking here soon because I think yeah. the finals are next week for KU students. Yeah. So then at that point, the semester's over. So then theoretically, 
I think you could add him as, as soon as finals would end, I, I'd imagine, or, or maybe he can't play until second semester. I don't know when technically that would start, but you'd probably want to have him by, by the Yale game, I guess. I don't, I, know. I don't know if he could play in that game, but like... No, I don't think so. You'd like to have it announced that that was a thing by then, right? Yeah. So, and again, maybe that's not this, maybe that's not Tiller, but... Yeah. KU, I think, is in the hunt for somebody. And then the last piece of uh, thing here from Rivals, they have updated their recruiting rankings for football, and because of it, KU football now has four four-star recruits in the class, which is as many as I can remember them having in, in quite some time. Yeah. Austin Alexander on Rivals is now their top recruit, the corner from Chicago Heights, Illinois. Jalen Todd, who's the corner from Southfield, Michigan, is the second recruit. Deshaun Warner, the defensive end from uh, Desert Edge High School in Arizona is a four-star, and then Dak Brinkley, a linebacker from Katy, Texas, also a four-star. Just slightly below four-star is Isaiah Marshall, Harry Stewart, and Damani Maxson as well. So uh, you notice a theme with those four guys that you listed? They're Defense. all defensive players. So you got to feel really, really good about the talent level that you have. And there's already some guys in the program that we think can be pretty talented uh, you know, they're finishing up the first year in the Total program. Total Nikki you know. gone. Defense got better this year. What if all of a sudden KU turns into like a dominant like defense Iowa. in the new Big 12? Yeah, what if what if Kansas turns into Iowa? But with Jalen Daniels. Well, Iowa with Jalen Daniels would win the national championship, I think. Maybe. I don't know. But yeah, so I mean, some good bumps there for uh, KU football. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a timeout. We got fun with numbers coming up next. He's Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to RCST on KLWN, depending on it. Hey, it's Derek Johnson from Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. And despite sitting around in a studio all day, I feel loose and limber thanks to Massage Envy and their total body stretch service. If you have aches from a day at the office, working out, maybe a round of golf, Massage Envy can help. All you need to do is relax and breathe deep during the stretches, and they'll take it from there. It's great for your body and your mind. And they also have rapid tension services and advanced skin care. Massage Envy on 6th Street in Lawrence and 119th in Black Bob in Olathe. Back into Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. We're going to get to our KU football regular season superlatives coming up in our next segment. Voice of the Jayhawks, Brian Haney, will join us coming up at 5.05. We're out today at 5.45 for High School Sports Weekly at Mama's Tamale Shop. So tune into that after the show here on KLWN. All right, let's have some fun with numbers. Last time we did fun with numbers, we got Andy Colnicky News happened. Yeah, we got cut off. So maybe something's going to happen now. Like what? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It could be anything. Well, the Jeff Grimes stuff came out earlier today, so we should be That's in the true. clear, I would think. You would think. that. You never know. Okay, well, uh, I did a little query, a little search, and um, since 1992 to 1993, here is the list of KU players to average 20 points and 12 rebounds per game in a season, which Hunter Dickinson is currently doing. The list. Hunter Dickinson. That's and? it. That's oh, it. oh, that's it? That's it. Oh. Now, if I change oh. the list to 19 points and 11 rebounds per game, you would have Drew Gooden, Rafe LaFrance, Wayne Simeon, and Hunter Dickinson. All of those were first-team All-Americans. Well, I think we expect Hunter Dickinson to yeah. be on that level. Uh, but a conversation we had yesterday about this, we talked about Kevin McCuller and how you thought maybe his numbers might drop. If Dickinson's at 20 and 12, do you expect his numbers to dip a little bit as well? I think so. Um, 
once you get into conference play, teams are going to start having to devise specifically defenses around Hunter Dickinson, right? Sure. Whether that's double teams or just doing something. Bullying him out of the paint. Right. Something. But, like, he's been – he's played at a power five level. He's played in the Big Ten where you're going up against real centers night in and night out. So, I don't think – that I think the numbers just drop just inherently because the games get harder and your points per game go down. But, like, Maybe. he's probably still going to put up 19 and 10. I don't know, man. In big games this season, 27 and 21 well, The number's going to actually go up. You know, and what did he have – and didn't he have – what did he have in, in Tennessee? Some, some similar numbers? Hey, I know he had 20 – I think it was like 19 and 20 or something like that. Yeah. So okay, in, that's against high-level competition, he's been even better. No, are the numbers going to go up? Because think about he it. does try. He tries. So against NC Central, he played 24 minutes. Against Manhattan, he played 20 minutes. Against Chaminade, he played 32. And then against uh, Eastern Illinois, 35. Against UMKC, 29. In all of the Big 12 games, he's going to be playing, as long as he avoids foul trouble and injury, you know, 35-plus minutes probably. I don't know, 34-plus minutes? So like the minutes could go up. Yeah, I, I think ideally, I I don't I'd like to see him averaging like thirty two minutes, probably thirty three minutes. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to see him doing more than that. But yeah, twenty seven and twenty one against Kentucky, only thirteen and eight against Marquette, seventeen and twenty against Tennessee, fifteen and nine against UConn. Yeah, I don't know. Honestly, I think they'll be around the same. Okay, if he gets to twenty, if he finishes the season twenty and twelve. Does that go down as like the best season from a center in KU history? I guess no, because Wilt? Wilt Chamberlain exists. Yeah, yeah um, I guess besides Wilt. <laughs> I mean, Danny Manning. Do you count him as a four or five? I think modern, he's more of a four. Modern KU history. In modern day, he would be viewed as a five. But uh, in modern, I mean, it's tough. In how about in the Bill Self era? Sure. Um, it's still tough because like. I, I, part of it does depend on what you do in the postseason. Sure. You know, that does matter yeah. a little bit. Like that's, I mean, you look at uh, Ojak Baji, what, what he did. You look at Diedrich Lawson and the season right. that he had, but that was not one of the better or more memorable KU teams, and KU ended up losing in the second round of that season. I always feel bad for Diedrich because he averaged 25 points per game in the two tournament games, too. But, yeah, I'm, Diedrich Lawson, 19.4 points, 10.3 rebounds, one. So he was pretty assists. close to being in this, in this category. He was. He was. Um... I mean, Yudoka Azubuki, the, the counting stats aren't nearly as good, but the impact is monumental. You know, shoot whenever you're shooting 75% from the floor and you're the best defensive center in college basketball. It's pretty good. And by the end of the year, Doak was putting up the counting stats. He was having games where he's, you know, getting 20 and 20 or 30 yeah. and 15 or something. So, yeah. That would certainly be up there. Um, I mean, Jeff Withy, just from like the defensive dominance, but I, I think you still take this with what Hunter's doing over that. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question as far as Bill Self centers specifically because a lot of times the the best big men Bill Self has had, like, come to think of it, they've been the power forwards, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. those have been the skilled guys who put up, like, Thomas Robinson who's having his jersey retired this Saturday. He's a power forward. So I, I yeah. think there is a real case that, yeah, this could be the best center season that a Bill Self center's ever had. But I, I would – there have just been so many good ones, you know, Cole Aldridge, and you go down the list that it's <laughs> – it's hard to say that definitively right now without actually seeing the full season in front of you. It sure. really is. Sure. Um, here's another number. Johnny Furphy right now is fourth on KU in points per game. So he is behind Kevin and Hunter. Kevin and Hunter and KJ. And KJ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because Dewan Harris's impact is not always points. No. And uh, you know, I think some people would would point to this and say, "See, 
that's proof. Johnny Furphy needs to be the fifth starter for uh, for for Kansas overall. Marco Jackson for now. Again, I I still am kind of of the opinion like, nah, I'm not really losing sleep one way or the other over it because I think they're both going to end up playing a significant role. They're going to have to because uh, is, okay, Bill Self Circle of Trust. I'm guessing it's uh it's it's the five starters. Is Furphy in it? Are you are you saying he's in it? Uh yes. So yeah, Furphy. And that's it, right? Yeah, but also like okay, so Furphy's played fourteen minutes in three straight games. If KU had like okay, let's just say the Nick Timberlake move hit. Let's say the Nick Timberlake move was everything you so wanted. Like, what? He's averaging twelve points per game on, sure, like on good forty two percent from yeah, three. Basically got what you were hoping you got from him, right? Do you think Johnny Furphy and Marco Jackson would be in the circle of trust at that point? Or is this they're just getting those types of minutes because somebody has to play? Well, I think if you got that from Timberlake and you have and you have the same that we have right now from Marco where he's been like kinda mm-hmm. underwhelming given the circumstances of what he was expected to be. I kinda wonder if he would be. I think Furphy I feel like he's good enough to where he would maybe be in that conversation regardless. Would he be in the circle of trust? Probably not. But I don't know. That's that's why I asked you. Is it even fair to put him in the circle of trust now? It might not be. It might not with any of that. I I think it's just four guys are in it right now. Is he just on the outside of the circle of trust? I think it's four guys are in the circle of trust. Two guys are in the... They're just hanging out in the way. room. got one foot in, one foot out. Hanging out in the lobby? Inside the circle. One foot's in, one foot's out. Get the invite? Um, honestly, I think Parker Brown is in the circle of trust. Okay. Okay. It's just that it's a ceiling it's on a the different circle of trust. Dickinson. Yeah, it is. So I, I think it's five guys, the four starters plus Parker. And then, yeah, El Marco and Johnny Furphy have one foot in, one foot out. And then Jamari and Timberlake are both kind of outside of it, but for different reasons. Like, I think Jamari McDowell is in the circle of trust from like a mental standpoint. Like, I think Jamari McDowell hasn't really done anything wrong from the standpoint of, like, Bill Self trusts him in the sense of if I have to throw him out there, I will, and I think long-term he's going to be a helpful player for us. Um, It's just right now he just needs to get better at those things, right? Could be. With Timberlake, I think it is a legit circle of trust thing. Messing up scouting report, defense, you know. Yeah. Not hitting shots right now. Well, I just feel it's just tough because, you know, with – Timberlake, who we've talked about a lot, obviously. When you are out there to do one thing specifically, and you're ha- and you're struggling with that one thing, I could totally see that becoming sort of a mental thing where it snowballs into other areas, right? Where you're putting a lot of mental pressure on yourself to be successful at kind of the one thing that you were expected to be successful at, and you're not. And then that kind of snowballs into other areas sure. to where now your mental capacity is taken up and you're not as sharp on defense or other other areas. Well, and, uh, by the way, right now, Nick Timberlake, Marco Jackson, Jamari McDowell from three are combined 14 of 53. That is 26%. Need a little yeah, more that's, there. That, that's not great. How about I mean, this one? Uh, K.J. Adams is leading Kansas in steals per game. Mm, Isn't that kind of crazy on a team with Dewan Harris and Kevin McCuller? Yeah, yeah. But, see, that furthers my thought because right now this has not been a, a team that's done a great job at forcing turnovers or gotten a bunch of steals early in this season. Right now they are 
276th in the country in turnover defense. They are 143rd in the country in steal rate defense. You compare that to last year, they were 65th and 17th, respectively. So they were a lead at it last year in getting steals. Yeah. This year, that hasn't been the case. But this furthers my thought on the fact they should be a good steal team. Because if you're saying, okay, we know we have Kevin McCuller and Dwan Harris, who are good at this, and last year I think both were at two plus steals per game. Right now, that's not happening. But see, and I, then KJ Adams is getting a bunch of steals. I mean, Hunter Dickinson is at least like he's getting a steal per game. He's an, he's an aware defender. How would you rate Dewan Harris's defensive performance, like on a on a report card grade so far this season? Uh, are you comparing it to last season, yes. or are you comparing it to just in general? I'm saying compared to where he was last season. If you're okay, yeah, because I think compared to in general, he's still been a solid defender. I think if you're comparing it to last year, like, I would have like a hard a time minus, right? early in the year putting him on the All Big Twelve defensive team. Yeah, I 100 percent agree. So compared to what we think he can be or what he has shown to be in defensively, yeah, it's been like a C minus type season. And maybe so that's far. because they don't really have a backup point guard. I mean, uh, Marco Jackson in theory was supposed to be that, but we we've seen it. Like Kevin McCuller is kind of the backup point guard right now, and and Dewan's yeah. having to play so many minutes yeah. and do so much on the offensive end of the well, court. Maybe he just remember have Bill it Self. On that end. Bill Self did allude to this uh, a while back, a couple weeks ago, about the idea of he didn't specifically say like guys taking plays off, so to speak, or taking possessions off. But he did talk about, you know, hey, we need to get it to where maybe not every possession McCuller or Dewan is guarding the best offensive player for the opposing team. And yeah. if you want to extend that thought process a little bit further, that's basically saying if those guys are going to be playing so many minutes and have to exert themselves so much throughout the game, let's try to help them out a little bit by keeping them on the court but not putting them in a position where they're exerting 110% of their energy for the full 37, 36 minutes or whatever. Yeah. Well, so I don't know. Maybe that factors into it. but It does. But uh, right now, Dewan is averaging .9 steals per game. That would be the lowest of his career. He averaged one steal per game in just 16 minutes as a uh, redshirt freshman. Then he averaged 1.5, and then last year he averaged 2.2. So I, yeah, I think so that's a number that what, can go up. Less than half of what it was last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I don't. There's no doubt in my mind that he can. I don't think that get skill it. just went away. Yeah. No. Yeah. There's no doubt in my mind that he can get back to that level. It's just. Uh, it's just been a bit of a slow start defensively for him. By the way, kind of an odd number on Dewan. He's shooting 47 percent on threes. He's shooting 31% on twos. Good and <laughs> kind of a funny one. bad, yeah. Uh, Kansas has never had a team in the Bill Self era outside the top 200 in offensive rebound rate. This year, they're 299th. Yikes. I do expect that to get better, though. It seems like K.J. Adams has stepped up and is rebounding the ball well, better. They're actually down to 302nd. I but I, I will say, with Kevin McCuller being the offensive threat that he is now this season— that does kind of eliminate him as a rebounding on on the offensive boards, right? You think about last season, it was Jalen Wilson that was taking a lot. Well, last year, they weren't a great offensive rebounding team. They were 179th, but still. But the, the point being, Kevin McCuller is one of the better rebounders, but if he's the one taking all the shots, then that eliminates yeah. you know, offensive rebounding. I don't know how Ken Pomp calculates this, but... Does the offensive rebound rate uh, is it just a percentage of the rebounds that are there? Percentage basically? of yeah, your miss of the misses. Yeah, right. because you know the other aspect of this is, in terms of like total offensive rebounds, it would make sense for Kansas to have fewer opportunities because they've been shooting the ball so well from two. 
Yeah, so I mean, by total, I don't know. This is just by percentage. In terms of the number of misses, how often are you getting it? Right now, it's at 24.5%. Last year, it was 28.7%. Is Ernest Uday worth that much on the offensive glass? Was Grady Dick, Jalen Wilson? Jalen was more of a defensive rebounder, you know? No, that's what I'm saying, because he was taking all the shots. That's what I'm saying. If you're, if you're the one taking the shots, you're probably not going to be getting very And actually, much. Dickinson is at an 11.3 on offense right now. That actually would have been better than anyone on last year's team. Mm. So you upgraded at center. KJ, though, was at like 8 or 9 last year. He's at 4.4 this year. Um, and I don't know. Grady Dick was good at it. Maybe you don't have that replacement there. I, I don't know why. Uh, but, yeah, that's something that I don't expect them to be a lead at, but can you get a little better there? Uh, the other category that they have kind of struggled at this year, we've talked about this, has been free throw shooting. They're shooting 68.8%. That is 247th in the country. Oddly enough, though, I was surprised by this. KU's had five worst teams under Bill Self at uh, free throw shooting if you just go by percentage. Oh. Including, this was the one that really got me, the 2017 team. The one with Frank Mason, Devontae Graham, uh, Josh Jackson, uh, Svi Mikhailuk, LeGerald Vick. That team was a percentage point worse than this team at the free throw line. What's up with that? Wow. Did that team have Doke on it? Ah, uh, would that have been his first year? Freshman year? I think that was Doke, but he got injured early in the season. Okay. I didn't Carlton know if maybe Bragg, that, drag, Landon Lucas. that dragged down the percentage. Why were they so bad at free throws? Let's see. Vic was at 83%. Svee was at 70%. Lucas was at 62%, which is you know more than fine for your center. Devontae was at 79 Bragg was at 64 Oh, Josh Jackson was at 57%, and he was second on your team in free throws. Mm, I do remember him that not hurt. being that great. That yeah. hurt. I, I swear, though. Frank Mason was 79%. I swear. He did not miss a free throw when you needed it, though. Yeah. Like, never. Anyway. Definitely at the clutch team. All right, that's fun with numbers. He is Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. One hour down, two to go. This is RCST on KLWN. Depend on it. We're going to head to High School Sports Weekly with Mama's Tamale Shop about a quarter till six, and we will uh, have that for you right here on KLWN after the show. Don't forget, you can check out anything you miss with our Best of RCST podcast anywhere that you get your podcast. Brought to you by Massage Envy, also now available at KUSports.com. So we uh, last week did our KU football awards for the regular season. This is going to be kind of the same idea. It's a year, you know, regular season thing. But we're going to be doing season superlatives for KU football mm. today. Okay. From the regular season. And the first superlative that I want to give out, moment of the year. What is the mm. moment of the year for KU football? So I think uh, the blackout right. just in general, like against Illinois, cool scene. It's pretty cool, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, just in general, beating Oklahoma. Yeah, but I don't know if we should narrow that down into different tidbits like instead bean of just bean touchdown run. Right, like the bean touchdown bean run. Past the Arnold, past Lawrence Arnold, the uh, final incompletion, and then fans storm the field. Yeah, hmm. the yeah. Kobe hit scoop and score against BYU. Certainly, yeah. that's. Sneaky. I don't know. The play. The Kenny Logan pick six against BYU. You think that'd be the moment of the year, though? No. No. I'm just throwing it out there. Okay. I'm just throwing out options. I'm um, not saying I think any of these are. Watching the broadcasters eat Skyline Chili for 10 minutes in the Cincinnati game. Oh, you think that'd be the moment of the year? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly be one of the more memorable ones for me. <laughs> no. Um, I think this has I mean, to do with something with Oklahoma. Like when yeah. you, when you think back on this season, five years from now, ten years from now, you're Oklahoma gonna win will be very. Important. You're gonna remember. Oh, that was the year they beat Oklahoma in the final year before Oklahoma left. So like, 
it Could just be, from yeah. there to me devolves into what is the moment that defines that game. Mm, I don't know. I I also kind of like I said. I I think I think Jason B needs to be involved in this somehow because of the year that he's had and kind of how things went down with him last season and ultimately coming back. He deserves a moment, mm-hmm. some kind of moment. So I don't I mean, you know, if you want to go with the fourth down play, pass to extend the extend the series to win the game, the touchdown run where he just blows by everybody and, and does like the track runner finish thing, <laughs> running through the invisible ribbons. Okay, what about this? Wasn't there a, a sideline video from after Jason Bean kind of like broke down and was crying on the sidelines yeah. after KU won, fans yeah. are storming the field? That what might about be that? actually. Yeah. I think that might be the moment of the year because if you think about it, that encompasses everything. That encompasses the struggle and the journey for Jason Bean to get to that point. That yeah. encompasses you beating Oklahoma. That encompasses the fans storming the field. That encompasses everything that the other players, the staff, and everybody in that program accomplished and yeah. coming out into that emotion from Jason Bean. I mean, how about that? I think five years from now, what you said about the Oklahoma win, yes, but I will, I'll, I'll be like, well, that was the Jason Bean year. Okay, that was the year that Jason Bean, you know, redeemed himself. Maybe isn't the right term, but stepped up in a moment where he could have easily just walked away mm-hmm. at the end of the previous season, and really, in my eyes built a, an incredible legacy as, as a member of the Kansas football team. Think how pivotal this past offseason was for K. Like, not just pivotal. I mean, every offseason is pivotal. Think about how much they nailed this past offseason. Jason Bean convincing him to come back. I know Cole Ballard looked pretty good for a true freshman third-string quarterback, but, I mean, Jason Bean was a top again, 20, 25 quarterback in Cole Ballard was a walk-on. Right. Until, you know. Nine weeks in the So, season. I mean, you, you look at the offseason, that right there is like Chiefs amongst the biggest moves that they had to make in the offseason. Uh, you had J.B. Brown, who has the big fumble uh, against Oklahoma, and just, I thought, played really well all season long at one of the linebacker spots. Austin Booker. Austin Booker was your best pass rusher on on a season where he was one of the best pass rushers in the entire conference. And there were questions all offseason, how are you going to replace Lonnie Phelps? Even through the offseason, we weren't even sure Austin Booker was going to be a starter. It was like, oh, it's Jeremy Robinson, and who's going to be the other guy? Yeah. And Austin we, Booker we definitively know. was like, I'm that dude, you know? Like, uh, some of the hits at Devin Phillips and, and some of the additions that they made, just incredible stuff in what they did. But, yeah, moment of the year for me, let's go with that. Jason Bean crying Jason on the Bean. sideline, breaking down after KU beats Oklahoma. Yep. I'm All right. With, I'm um, moment you least want to relive of the year. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so there's the obviously the K-State loss. It's pretty sad. If we had to narrow that down to specific plays, the muff punt, the drop pick six would be the two, right? Yeah. Um, the the Texas Tech giving up the deep ball when it was 13-13. You had come all the way back to tie it. Yeah. They added it at your, like, what, 40, 45, something oh, like that. That, that did suck, yeah. And Because immediately when they caught that ball inside your 15, you were like, well, there you go. Yeah, that, that did suck. Um, the Oklahoma State offsides that wasn't called offsides, and then he gets sacked on the fourth down. That was tough. The entire Jalen Daniels injury saga, that would not be fun to relive again. Specifically, the moment before the Texas game where you're getting ready to watch the game. I, I was walking into the stadium because I was at the game, and I just got like a text from a friend. who was like, wait, Jalen's not playing? It was like five minutes before the game. I was like, wait, no, what? Yeah, I think to me there are two, two things I don't want to relive again. Okay. To your point about the Jalen Daniels mm-hmm. Texas thing, I'm sitting on the couch with a couple of buddies in here in Lawrence, getting ready to watch the game. 
the excitement level heading into that game, I think for myself, and I think for a lot of KU fans, probably couldn't have been any higher. I mean, <laughs> a lot of KU fans ranked. talked themselves into KU going in and easily winning that game on the road against Texas. You know, Jalen Daniels is going to play. You're feeling great. And the the immediate vibe switch <laughs> when it became clear that Jalen Daniels was not going to play. I mean, it was it was like a funeral. It, it, it really was. I mean, and it's it not, was horrible. It's it, it, it was the mo like the mo the most deflated I've ever been ahead of a game. Before ever. it even started. You yes. felt like you had lost yes. by forty before yes. it even started. Like I didn't even want to watch the game. Right. Anymore. And it wasn't a knock against Jason Mean. Again, Jason Mean was great this and year. And they knew with Jason Bean. Yeah. And and honestly, like I would love to see that game happen again with Jason Bean the full week of prep sure. and stuff. I still think Texas wins because Texas is really good. They're in the call for the playoff, right? Title. Yeah. Newsflash. Um, but that was a brutal moment. And honestly, just all season long, the whole injury, the whole injury saga from the beginning of the season in the non-con before even the first game to being rope-a-doped yeah. by the coaching staff about what's going on to him being it, is he going to come back and then eventually just hitting the point where it's like, all right, this ain't happening. So I think that the, was not fun. The, and it the, wasn't fun for me to talk about it. Like, I, I did not yeah. enjoy it. The 20 minutes... Leading up to the Texas game was pretty bad. I still but think it's the case. After the K State loss, that was, uh, you know, for a regular season game in any sport, that was the saddest I've ever been. I mean, it was just totally just depressed. It, yeah, that's, it's I certainly mean, up there. It was brutal. It was brutal. So I don't know. To me, it's definitely between those two. It's, it's between those two. Because I think it's, it's the muff the, punt the, for me. The, the excitement heading into the Texas game. Convincing yourself KU could win the game to then where you were 20 minutes before kickoff. But I don't know, man. Walking out of the Kansas State, walking out of the stadium <laughs> brutal after Kansas State was was terrible. I mean, I mean, we talked about it. It, it the, the stars were aligning for it to be a storybook ending. Your last game at the booth, especially for some of the seniors that have been here through the ups and the downs. Guys like Kenny Logan, Mason Fairchild. Last game at the booth. You're playing great. A chance to finally close the book on an era of forgettable KU football and to officially, I think, truly christen and usher in Lance Leipold. Not, I mean, he, obviously, the Lance Leipold areas are, had right. already started, right? But it felt like there you needed, you know, and you, you could argue maybe the Texas win previously was kind of that moment, but maybe not officially. To me, the Kansas State win would have been, okay, done, book Close chapter done. Maybe in the Pop Tarts Bowl right now. Era. Yes. How about that? <clears throat> so I, I don't know, man. I, I might go with I, I, I might go with that. It was just uh, it was just really sad. Yeah, it was really sad. It was. <laughs> I would at least want to relive that too. Okay. Uh, what was the most important win of the season? Mm. Well, obviously, you have Oklahoma on there. Right. That's got to be pretty close. I think the only win you I think can't argue is Missouri State. <laughs> uh, yeah. I would probably lop off Nevada. Now there is a. No man, it wasn't important. The way you won the game, I know, but like the win itself wasn't important. But maybe the way the game unfolded, it became important, right? Yeah, because the season the season gets derailed if you don't win that. Obviously. Maybe. <laughs> I still think they bounce back and beat BYU. But probably, you never yeah, know. I don't know. You never know. Yeah. yeah. I see. I think the Illinois win, you could argue. To that notion of getting, you know, staying on the railways, but sure. To me, it's between Oklahoma and Iowa State. Yeah, those are the top two. I I think Cincinnati deserves some credit though. Just absolutely bludgeoning a team on the road. 
Just yes, it's smashing that. Them, just dominating them. And it's also if you them, lose that game. Think about them. the importance. If you lose that game, what is the vibe right now? You would have lost three straight games to finish the season. Uh, it would have been kind of In the sad. same ilk that you did the year before. You're going been, into the, you know. Objectively, pretty sad, yeah. It would yeah. have been. I will say this. The, that combined with Andy Kolnicki leaving would have made it extra bad. It would feel very dark right now. <laughs> and does that, if you if you finish on a three-game losing streak, does that increase the chance anybody enters the portal? I don't know. Nah, I don't know, maybe. I do think, though, you have to go with Oklahoma. Oklahoma or Iowa State. I, mean, I honestly the believe the Iowa win. State game, Iowa State win was, was The Iowa State win did show that this is a program that can bounce off of those big wins, which you have to do to be a better program, and still show up the next week and be consistent. So, yes, that one had a very big meaning to it. And maybe that one is more important for the future of this program and, and what it shows and also that, like, hey, Oklahoma's not even going to be in the Big 12 anymore. So I can understand the reasoning there. I just think, again, going I mean, back they have to hold that the L win, permanently forever. Oklahoma does. Oh, yeah. Yeah, last time you play them. Yeah. It's your signature win. It got you ranked in the t- – I mean, the, the fact that you were ranked for, what, like four weeks this year, five weeks this year? Between the college football playoff and like the eight people, like a big part of it was beating Oklahoma. And that's why you sure. got ranked as high as like 16th at one point. So I think that's the most important for me. What was your best loss? Dude, I hate the best loss crap. They all suck. I don't want to pick a best it's, one. Uh, it's a conversation in the college football. You got to have it. I think the best loss is probably Texas then. They're in the playoff, even yeah. though you that was your biggest loss points wise. Yeah, but. The other three games, you should have won. So I don't want to call any of those a good loss. I definitely don't think you can take Kansas State. That is, like, off the board here. Right? They're all off the board. You should have won all three no, of them. No, I think you could argue Texas Tech. Why? You had a third-string quarterback who was a walk-on two months ago who was playing his first Division One football, and you lost on a last-second field goal. That's not the worst loss See, to a bowl that just, team. That just makes me, that just makes me mad. That isn't, it's not the worst loss. It's just a, I'm just mad about but it. But see, like, with the K-State one, it's like fluky plays that made you lose. Dropping a punt. Well, I don't know. Fluky might be the wrong word. Because no, you, I know. You've dropped other punts this the year. The Oklahoma but you know State I mean. loss and the Kansas State loss are off the board 100 Whereas with the Texas Tech, the reason you think they could have won the game is because the red zone offense wasn't great. But the red zone offense wasn't great all year long, you know? And they had a third-string quarterback. Just, of course the no, red zone offense is going to be worse. I don't want to pick a game where they should have won. I think that's their best loss to me. It's the most easily excusable. Mm, I'd no, be Texas fine if you argued Texas. Easily excusable. It is, but because again, starting, when you lose by 26. The Big 12 Conference Player of the Year, you find out he was out 10 minutes for kick. Or however I guess long. this is the way I'm framing Whatever. it. I don't know. When I think about you walked out of the stadium after the game, your feeling about the team, which one made it change the least? It was the Tech game for me. It was Texas for me. Okay. Because I was just pissed off after the other ones. I was just mad. Well, I can't say I was sad, but, you know. Offensive player who gained the most. This oh, season. easy slam dunk, Jason Bean. Mr. Bean, Mr. Bean. Easy slam dunk. What about Dominic Pooney? I mean, we, we knew he was already a really good offensive lineman, but we yeah. didn't know he could play left tackle. Yeah. From guard to tackle. Well, he played left tackle at Central... Southeast, he North, did. West, Central East, Missouri, Missouri State. I don't know. Which but one to was go it? to go from being an all conference guard to then having to switch to left tackle and being all conference first team this year. Now he's he's being a guy who could be picked in the NFL draft. He's a he's a finalist for the uh, Polynesian Player of the Year award. Like 
I don't know. That, there, there's a lot that he gained, I think, from his professional. Sure. I, I mean, just uh, like I guess you can in general, tackles are much more valuable. Players that may gain the most in the eyes of KU fans, it's Jason Bean. But yeah. you could probably make an argument, like individually, for his a guy career. like Pooney may have gained more, or even someone like Devin Neal maybe gained. More. Sure, I, I think as good as Devin Neal was, you know, in 2022, he got even better this yes. year. I mean, he was an All Conference running back in or, 22. Again, He's even better this year. Austin right. Booker would be another guy. Well, this is offensive. Gained. Oh, right. Yeah, idiot. Okay, sorry. I think Michael I'll Ford deserves some credit here because let me guess, we're going to do defense next. Yes, so we I'll are. keep that. I'll keep that one locked and loaded. Uh, Michael Ford. Was really good at the guard. I mean, his pro football focus grades off the charts. Really impressive. He also, I go into next year, you lose Mike Nowitzki, which is a big loss, three-year starter at center. And I'm not, like, overly worried because if you remember, Mike Nowitzki was injured during spring ball. Michael and Ford who was, was taking the snaps? It was Mike, Michael Mike Ford. Ford. And yeah. Michael Ford had such a good year this year that I feel so confident in him. If I, I don't know if that's what they're going to do, if they're just going to move him to center next year or they're going to keep him at guard and bring in a center. But I, I feel so confident in Michael Ford. So I think those would be the ones that I would most highlight who gained the most this season. Yeah, again, I think in the eyes of the fans, I think it's got to be being number one. But if you're talking about individually, Devin Neal and Dominic Pooney are probably your next two. Okay. All right, defensive player who gained the most. Oh, you know, there's this guy. Uh, his name slips my mind. Oh, Austin Booker. Mm. Oh, yeah, that guy. Now, can you pick him if he wasn't on the team last year? Well, I guess, again, that goes back to are you talking individually? You're talking sure. for the team. But, no, I, I do think that's a good pick. Because, again, we go back to the offseason. It was like, okay, Robinson's one of the starters. Is it going to be Hayden Hatcher? Is it going to be Patrick Joyner? Is it going to be, you know, whoever? Yeah, Austin Booker, he felt like an afterthought. He did. It felt like, okay, Austin Booker's coming in. He's like 6'6". Oh, yeah, here's this long, He's this wiry, lengthy, guy. lengthy yeah. guy. Maybe it'll take him a year or two, and then he turns out to be a really good player for you. In the same ilk that we talked about, like Dylan Brooks. Turns out he was ready to go right off the bat, and yeah. he's been your best pass rusher this season. He's, you know, all Big 12 first team, excellent player. I mean, he gained a ton from just yeah. going from a possible rotation player to a star and from, I mean, he's he's on NFL draft radars now, right? Yeah. So that's a little bit of everything. Uh, J.B. Brown, I just love J.B. Brown. I want to throw him in there. You, you should just make an award that player Derek loves most. Yes. Yeah. Oh, you, yeah. Uh, Kobe Bryant is in the same vein as yeah. Devin Neal. Both were really good players for you in 2022, but they have taken even yet another step in 2023. Sneaky Mellow Dotson? Mellow Dotson, I don't even think sneaky. I think that, okay. that is a big one for sure. Okay. He was a third-team All-American by, by some publication, yeah. so that was cool. Well, the big thing with Mellow Dotson, and, and the reason why you would maybe pick him is because Kobe Bryant, people knew about, and then teams went to attack Melo Dotson, and he stepped up time and time again. Kept getting a bunch of picks delivered. and pick sixes over the back half of the season. Yeah, Kenny Logan, because uh, we've talked about this before, uh, two years ago in 2021, Kenny Logan was excellent. Then 2022, he had a, a solid season, but you look at some of the numbers, they went down a little bit. This year he was back to, to what we're used to. So I think that would be a good one. And then Marvin Grant. I thought Marvin Grant was really good this year. We heard a lot in the offseason about how he was uh, taking stuff more seriously, watching more film, that he was yeah. doing more behind the scenes. So I think all those would make sense. Honestly, the ones I would go with would be Melo Dotson or Austin Booker, though. Yeah, I'll take uh, I'll take Austin Booker, yeah. Defensive player gained the most. All right, uh, last one we have here is the coach who gained the most. Mm. Interesting. I think uh, Jordan Peterson's probably got to be up there. Jordan Peterson for sure. 
Lance All right, Leipold. So I know obviously he's not on staff, but okay. Andy Kolicki. I mean, what, what what are we what are we doing? I now? mean, he gained enough to get a job at Penn State and get a bunch so of can money. We, can we two million? Can we year. posthumously give him this award? I think he's a candidate. I, I think like okay. I don't know that there's many coaches that aren't candidates because I think everybody when when you're a coaching staff when your team wins it's what's what's that saying uh, the high tide rises all ships something like that uh, yeah yeah I think you almost I don't, got that right. I don't think I got the exact saying right but I think you, you understand got that it pretty close right so that that's kind of how it goes with winning games but like so like from that standpoint Lance Leipold you know goes up you've gotten Kansas to eight wins in just your third year that's pretty incredible oh yeah you know right a rising tide lifts all boats okay you know there it. we go yeah you got it. Um, Andy Kotelnicki, like you said, but then again, you know, even though, could again, you argue that? Can th- we give it to? Can we posthumously give it to a guy who's not on staff? Well, I think we can, but here's my problem. What was the offense definitively better in 2023 than it was in 2022? I mean, by some stats, it was worse. No. So, but not his. Not, it's still really that's good. Not because no, it's not his fault. I mean, there were some injuries. injuries and whatever, right? But I don't think you'd say he gained the most. Okay. I think he's just a really good coordinator, and he stayed being a really good coordinator. You know, fine, sure. Brian Borland gained a ton. He did. I mean, there was there was people wanting to put him on the hot seat after last year. I always said that I thought that wasn't going to happen, and that wasn't something that should happen because I thought that the offense had a more full cupboard than the defense, and you needed to give it time. And sure enough, give it time, and defense now got some players and- got much better this year, right? Yeah. But I I think that was pretty apparent that, hey, Brian Borland might know what he's doing here, and this was a big year for him, right? To your point on Jordan Peterson, huge year in recruiting, huge enough year that he gets promoted to co-defensive coordinator, and uh, he's been so big for you with with some of the player stuff too. Jim Zabrowski, I mean, he got promoted to co-offensive coordinator. I guess he yeah. gets in there. Yeah. Scott Fuchs, the offensive line's been excellent for KU. Um, Jim, I if, if we've, like... You look at the defensive line after losing Lonnie Phelps, there were a lot of questions there. Yeah, for sure. And the job that Jim Panagos did, who's the defensive tackles coach, and Taiwo Onotolu, the defensive ends coach, to get that unit into being, and, and having guys like Austin Booker, Devin Phillips, Tommy Dunn, you know, DJ Withers, these guys, I, I think yeah. credit is owed Again, to those two. just like last year with the wide receiver room, you, you came into the preseason thinking, hey, D-line room, yikes, ended up being a very strong unit. I think it's with? Jordan Peterson. I think it's got to be. I'm cool with that. I'm going to go with Brian Borland okay. to give a different answer because yeah. I do think he deserves a lot of credit for what he did with the defense from from last year to this year. I mean, they're they're like almost 10 points better than they were. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's really good. good. I mean, they're, they're one of the they're best probably, teams and they were great at, They were great at home, too. They got a bunch of touchdowns. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, it's it's they're giving you I mean, offense. definitively, they won you like three games. Oh, yeah. Like they won you the BYU game, and the two Iowa State defensive game. touchdowns, right? And the Iowa State game. Iowa State game, you get a pick six. You win by seven. I mean, Oklahoma in theory, you get a pick six. Yeah. Win by five. Yeah. So yeah, uh, all those guys uh, deserve a lot of credit here. All right, he's Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. We're gonna take a timeout, switch gears a little bit. Um, we shared for you earlier in the week, Lance Leipold, his press conference, meeting with the media ahead of the guaranteed rate poll. We also got to hear from Barry Odom, the UNLV head coach, and uh, maybe we'll get to learn a little bit about the Rebels coming up on the other side. This is RCST on KLWN. Depend on it. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Nick Springer on FM 1017 and 1320. KLWN. Depend on it. Five o'clock hour. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN with, well, was with Nick Springer. He's out getting ready for High School Sports Weekly. That comes at you tonight 
on KLWN at 545. We're joined now by Voice of the Jayhawks, Brian Haney, in studio with us. So, Brian, thanks for hopping on here. Uh, obviously, we're still waiting for the bowl game and everything with KU football, but KU basketball, Missouri week. I, I was curious to know because you, you spend or have spent a lot of times with Scott Pollard in this very studio, David Lawrence. Um, who do you get more Missouri stories from? Is there somebody that you go to that is your your go-to, I guess, Missouri past lore story person? You know, I was really fortunate of all the cool things we did in 10 years here, starting up this show and being the sports director, sitting where you're sitting now. When David Lawrence came on to be a co-host, rotating days with Bud Stallworth, David introduced me to Don Fambro. And okay. we did something one summer with six different sessions called the Fam Files. Mm. And he came in for a full hour and just told all kinds of stories. And maybe 20% of them were about KU Mizzou, and the rest was just wild stuff. Somewhere in a box in my basement on CD, I have the recordings of the fam files. And we need to unearth these things and get them out there because fam was the ultimate storyteller. We've all heard the, the great line, it's not a rivalry, it's a war. And, and you love it, right? And they were playing that on social media this week with uh, Scott Pollard as well, and I love seeing that. But fam, to me, set the tone for the venom and the hatred and what this rivalry really, in his mind, was all about. Nowadays, and Coach Self touched on this today in the press conference, you know, we still want to beat them, and we still delight in the smack talk that comes from winning, especially when you've won by 35 and 27 and all that in recent years. But it doesn't have even a fraction of the relevance to a league race or a home-and-home where they got you in Columbia, now you're playing in Lawrence with a Big 12 title on the line, Big 8 title on the line, whatever. So it doesn't carry even you know, 25% of the venom that it used to. And so I hope that our students, who have no idea what this rivalry was truly about because they were so young when we were playing these guys on a regular basis, once they've seen enough of the social media videos of the T-Rob block and some of the big moments that happened in Columbia as well, that we can kind of create some of that excitement. Because even though they've been hearing about it the last two years, those games have not been close at all. And it's hard to imagine how hotly contested this rivalry once was and why it was the number one most circled game on the calendar. We disliked K-State strongly too, but there was always such an imbalance one sport to the next, whereas Mizzou, even though we have an all-time series edge, almost two to one in terms of wins all time, the games were always hotly contested, it felt like. Well, like you look at some of KU's best teams and they they might let like you, you go back to the the team Scott Pollard was on, right? They're right. they're one regular season loss, double overtime to Missouri in a game that uh, they're uh, injuring Jared Hass and stuff like that, right? I mean, it's it, you think of some of the fights that have happened in the game. Uh, I, I was just talking to somebody who uh, knew one of the players who or, or was, you know, I, I don't know. All sorts of things happen in this game, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this, Bud Starworth could tell you some amazing stories of pranks that students would pull and all that stuff. But, but yeah, I mean, it's it's heavily slanted toward KU. 176 to 95 all time, nearly two to one. Self is 18 and four as the wow. Kansas coach versus Mizzou. We've won four straight, nine of 10, 14 of 16. We've had an upper hand, but I hope the, the modern day Kansas students appreciate how much history there is there and can get up for it. Somebody was asking me 
on another show earlier today about how much better this Saturday will be compared to last Friday. And I said, honestly, I'm not sure it will be uh, because last Friday was two national champions. The last two national champions, the current defending national champions, I think our students were much easier amped for that one. But hopefully in the next 36 hours, you know, or I guess 48, since we're just past the, the tip-off time for Saturday, that uh, they'll see enough of the T-Rob block played back over and over and over again. They'll see enough quotes from Coach Self and others on what this game has meant to so many for so long. And it should still be a really special atmosphere. I just don't know that it's going to have, you know, the all-time energy buildup that, that some other games would have when it means more in a league head-to-head. It's crazy to think about that, you know, if they're a freshman in college, they're 18 right now, that when that T-Rob block happened, they're seven years old. Right. It's like, who knows how much uh, they remember that. I I do think it's important that you have the players knowledgeable about the rivalry, though. I I don't know if Bill Self's having anybody speak, but I would imagine having Dewan Harris being from Columbia. I would imagine having Parker Brown, who was at Missouri. His mom played at Missouri. Mm -hmm. I'd imagine those two things kind of help. It helps. But again... Dewan was what sure. you know ten, the last time they played, and so did he really have a feel for the rivalry? The last but time see, they, I they, wonder they if played he as, goes home. Sure, if he gets oh for sure know, noise and he can share that. Uh, he can share that yeah. for sure. Last time they played as conference rivals, I should say. Sure. Um, but Thomas Robinson will speak to the team. He's going to be a shoot around on Saturday. Gets in late on Friday night, so he'll have a chance to to tell him what this means to him. He's going to have. A good collection of former teammates back. I think Relaford, Mario Little, Brady Morningstar, Tyshawn Taylor amongst those coming back. I don't think Elijah can make it. I don't think Withy can make it. Uh, Connor Tehan should. Saw him earlier today. Four for four in that yeah, uh, the home one. The, the uh, 2012 home game. Yeah, yeah. He, he was quick to remind us that he was also two for two in Columbia. <laughs> so six for six, all things told, as a senior in that one. Wait, so what if we had Chris Tehan? Because he hit the one that got him over 100. Yeah. in the last home game. So it was seven for seven. I, I don't know if Chris missed any. We we determined that Chris also. I don't know if he played, but he was a part of the team that played them in the exhibition game. That's right. So technically, he was 2-0 and against them, even though only one of those was a real game. And, and so, yeah, we actually had this event in Kansas City today, the, the KC Roundball Luncheon, and Ryan Robertson was there, looked up his career. He was 6-3 and versus Mizzou. Um, Wayne Simeon was there. I had him as 8-2. and He said 7-1. and I think he was just looking at the games he yeah. played in because he was injured one year. So he said, no, Brian, 7-1. and <laughs> uh, Gurley, let's see, what was he? He was 6-2. Uh, and, two, and uh, of course, And I'm Bill sure Self. if you ask each and every of those guys, they remember the, the, the one or two losses. Oh, yeah. Probably pretty... Clearly, BMAC and Banks Floodman were both there. They were both three and two versus Mizzou. So everybody in the room had an upper hand, which which we like. But nobody had an upper hand like Bill Self's eighteen and four and ten and zero at home in Allen Fieldhouse. You gotta love that. Now, when you look at Missouri, just from the game perspective, they shoot a lot of threes. They shoot them at a pretty good rate. Uh, team that likes to force steals on the defensive end. K was able to kind of blow past that last year and get some easy buckets off it. What do you look at as being the keys for, for Kansas to win this one, kind of in the same ilk of, of being able to win big ones again? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's it's a different-looking team. We are and they are from a year ago, and so it's not going to probably unfold the same way it did. I'm curious to see how they can handle Hunter Dickinson in the post. And uh, yeah, I, I really want to see Kansas play from out in front and avoid those lulls that have allowed lesser teams to creep back in. I'm not saying that you got to – just keep building the lead nonstop. You can have the occasional dip. I mean, these are 18 to 22-year-old kids after all. But you'd love to see them feed off that environment early, 
race out to the early lead and then not have some of these stretches that have plagued us in some recent games creep back in. I don't expect it to be the blowout to the proportions it's been the last two times around for the reasons you mentioned. It's a well-coached team. It's won four in a row, just beat Wichita State. Uh, they, they look like they could be a tournament team this year. But I think Kansas does win this thing convincingly, and I'd love to just see it sustained. And you'd love to see the bench come in and not have a huge drop-off, which Bill's been clamoring for for a while. We're getting to that time of the year, though, Derek, where you really should start to see more of that. And I know we say this every year, and it sounds cliche, but truly, the the stretch of greatest development that any team has over the course of a five-month season is always second week in December through the first week in January when all they're focused on is basketball, particularly when you've got three freshmen, one of which reclassified to be here a year early, a Towson transfer who clearly has looked at times not settled and, and needs to get comfortable, talking about Nick Timberlake. And then, and then I think Parker, honestly, has been really consistent. You just want more offense out of him. But I think for all those guys, you're going to gradually see the, the tide raise up those ships of our bench. And Bill won't be talking about five through nine nearly as much, in part because the rotation is about to shrink a bit. Mm-hmm. But two, I really think Johnny's going to get his sea legs under him. I think that I really, really hope that Nick is as well. Uh, but I think this is a game that, that Kansas should play from out in front. And uh, with Hunter Dickinson established early, I, I think the guy that was always the villainous figure in the Michigan rivalry games to the point where Michigan State fans and Kentucky fans alike were teaming up to cheer against him <laughs> in Chicago. Just imagine how he's going to try to steal the show versus Mizzou. Not that there's going to be that many Tiger people there booing him, but I think he senses this is his chance mm-hmm. to become the most hated person in Columbia, and he likes that. So I, I look for Hunter to have a big, big game on Saturday. Yeah, and then the next week they're going at Indiana, so I guess a chance to uh, kind of yeah. double down that with some old Big Ten roots. Speaking of Hunter, we were talking earlier in the show, uh, there's a long, long, long list of, of players since 1992, that's as far back as college basketball reference goes, to average 20 and 12 at Kansas. It's, it's one guy. It's Hunter Dickinson. That's How it. about that? Now, who knows if he finishes that way because I think Bill Self said today it's going to be harder for those numbers to keep up in conference play, competition, strengthens, and all those things. There have been three other guys who put up 19 and 11 right on, on the mark with uh, Wayne Simeon, Rafe LaFrance, and uh, Drew Gooden. So he's in He's in company. And How Nick, close was T-Rob? Pretty close, T-Rob, I would think. T-Rob, I, I think, was at 10.5 rebounds per okay. game. Something like that. I was so, going to say, very close. Yeah, I, th- I think that's what kept him off of it. Um, and, and Nick asked me the question when he was here, here earlier. Okay, T-Rob was at 17.7 points per game. So I think it dipped a bit in the tournament. Okay. Uh, and then 11.9 rebounds. So he was close. And he said, is, is Hunter Dickinson, if this continues... Will he go down as the best center of the Bill Self era? And, and obviously, it's a, it's a weird question anytime you ask those because it's one year versus multiple. But I guess if you just take, maybe if we view it as best season of a center of the Bill Self era. And I said, I don't know, that, that's almost such, it, it's almost so ludicrous to ask because of how many great centers there have been in Bill Self's time at Kansas that it makes it really hard to kind of cipher through. But I mean, just from the numbers looking at it, you could have a real case that, that this is it right here. Yeah, it's, it's tough because the center position a lot of times is synonymous with a defensive dominating mm-hmm. player. So when I, when, I think of, yeah, when I think of dominating Bill Self centers, I think of Jeff Withey rewriting the NCAA tournament blocks mm-hmm. record book. I think of him rewriting the Kansas blocks record book. And he wasn't this dominant offensive feed at the post and get 20 points a game type guy. But man, was he good 
up against, you know, is back to the basket, redirecting shots, altering shots, all that. Yudoka Azubuki. Yeah. Think about the field goal percentage. That's another metric that when you consider great centers, like how efficient was he? And and Doak was a guy that competed for the nation's lead in multiple seasons in that regard, on top of in that one really special season his last year being such a presence on both ends of the floor that he winds up being Big 12 Player of the Year. And he's he's probably not next year, maybe three years from now, he'll be coming back for the jersey too. We've got a long um, queue, so to speak, guys waiting in the on-deck circle that have qualified, and you're going to see them start to catch up real fast. They they try to get a third for this season who also wears number zero. Okay. Dates didn't work out, so probably next season. Uh, but then you've got, obviously, Ochai Abaji, Devontae Graham, list goes on and on. Point is, to your point about Dickinson, the lack of defensive dominance I think brings him down just a touch. But if you're talking about a double-double guy who then brings something that none of the aforementioned previous options do, and that's the three-point threat, and a legit one at that. I mean, prior to the other night, he was shooting 65% from three. Um, That, to me, bumps him back up a peg. So it's one of those deals where there's so many different avenues or or angles to take in judging best center that you'd have to settle on one piece of criteria, I suppose. But he's got a chance, and of course, the possibility exists, Derek, if the NIL money was right and the pro prospects were such that it made more sense to keep earning in the college ranks, he could come back for a second year. Oh, we joked about that earlier this week, too, that when you look at the last couple of years, there's been that bump for the, I don't know, one last ride bump, I think somebody termed it to us. Ochak Baji for the one last ride, Jalen Wilson. Now Kevin McCuller's doing it right yeah. now. What does that look like for Hunter Dickinson? He's already putting up 20 and 12. Is he going to put up 25 and 15? Seriously, you know? no kidding. To me, if he had two or three more games like the Kentucky game when he went for 27 and 21, mm-hmm. then I'm willing to forgive the fact that he doesn't block shots like <laughs> Withy or alter them like Doak. I'm willing to forgive the fact that, that you know some of the other center metrics might not be his best because those are prolific performances on the biggest of stages. And the thing that he has more than any of those aforementioned guys is that, I don't want to say stage presence, but you know what I'm getting sure. at. Charisma. He, um, he has that moxie, yeah. that confidence, that swagger that, uh, I mean, he wants the pressure. We talked about it last week heading into the UConn game. And, you know, he, he didn't jump off the page in that matchup like maybe we would have hoped, but still had a really productive line and hit two threes early and had that scream to the heavens moment that we kind of forecast he might, feeling himself, feeling the vibe of 16,300. And I don't think any of those guys to that degree had that presence. And that may be what I remember Hunter the most for, you know, leaving out any on-court net cutting or stuff like that, of course, because this guy's got personality just oozing out his pores on top of being one of the most high-level production guys you could ever fathom. He's Brian Haney, voice of the Jayhawks. Hear him on the call with the Missouri game. Crimson and Blue Show will start at 2.30. Tip-off scheduled for 4.15 between the Jayhawks and the Tigers. Uh, before we let you go, word from Nate Miller. Man, we didn't even talk football today. I figured you'd have all kinds of uh, Jeff Grimes versus Quentin Grimes questions. I wasn't but. sure <laughs> yeah, which is which is the uh, going to be the more productive. No, I, I wasn't sure if you could talk about it yet. I, I saw the release just came out, so. Thank you for respecting that. We yeah, always have to absolutely. wait for the news. I can, and I'm thrilled for it. And in Lance, we trust, and we'll talk more about it next week since I know there you're getting out to break. But, yes, Nate Miller, check out the game plan, just like uh, Coach Grimes and Coach Self and everybody else that's a schemer and a dreamer has a game plan. He's got one for your most profitable and secure financial future. Check him out today at MillerRetirementGroup.com. Always good to see you, Derek Johnson. All right, cue the disclaimer.
Brian is a paid spokesperson, not a client. Brian does not endorse, and all individuals should make their own evaluation of the firm's investment advisory and insurance services. Investment advisory services offered only by duly registered individuals through AE Wealth Management, LLC. That was Brian Haney, voice of the Jayhawks. We're going to get to some Bill Self audio ahead of the Missouri game coming up next. We're out at 545 today for High School Sports Weekly. This is RCST on KLWN. Depend on it.